Blog Talk Radio. Like um, we're looking for 
African-American women of color to contribute to this anthology. I am the co-editor on this anthology, and we definitely, you know, we're looking for people to submit. Um, and when we say women of color, we're talking about, you know, African-American women, Latino-American, Filipino, indigenous women of color. So, you know, we want to make sure that we open it and make it available for everyone to be able to contribute to this. And if you go to the link, it gives you the information on what requirements are. The submission deadline is September 30th. We're looking for abstracts, so please, and it gives you the email address on where you can send the information. So we are definitely um, looking, you know, for you guys to contribute to this, and we appreciate um, your participation thus far, and we're looking for this to be a wonderful, wonderful project. And again, you know, I'm definitely um, working on this project with Dr. Hutchinson, and we invite you and we welcome you all to contribute to this, to this, you know, fantastic anthology that's coming up. And we have Mario on the line with us. Hey, Mario. Oh, maybe Mario isn't ready to speak yet. Oh, but... here, I'm here. I didn't. I... <laughs> I, there you go. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know you were gonna call, hit hit me up. I was. I had the phone on mute because I was driving. <laughs> oh, okay. But yeah, we have Barry on the line with us, and Dr. Cameron is here, and we want to welcome Dr. Cameron to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cameron. We appreciate your being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, you know, just to kind of let everybody know, you know, how I came across Dr. Cameron is, you know, I have these alerts for certain categories set up. And his information came across on an alert, and I sat back and I watched his writing for a while, and I was intrigued. And I saw that he was putting together um, some articles about black free thought as well as he's putting together a book, and he'll tell us about that a little bit later on. But what captivated me the most was Dr. Cameron's personal story. And, Dr. Cameron, would you mind sharing some of that with us today? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm not your uh, your average history professor, you definitely say, uh, about 11 years ago, I was locked up in um, in a county jail in New Hampshire on five felony drug charges. I'd gotten arrested when I was 17 years old. Um, and uh, that was basically sort of the turning point of my life, uh, getting arrested that young. I had experienced some academic and personal success. Uh, for instance, I'd been the valedictorian of my junior high school class, and um, I'd gotten a scholarship to an elite prep school, but eventually got kicked out of the prep school, kind of turned to dealing drugs after that. Um, but sitting in jail, you know, about a week before my 18th birthday was was really a, a motivating factor for me to turn my life around. I realized that I'd had some success in life. I'd done some noteworthy things as a young man, and I probably shouldn't be sitting in jail, you know, Um so that was sort of the start of uh, of this kind of journey into the life of the mind, into being an intellectual and in being an academic. Um, I actually I had to go to college. That was one of the uh, one of the mandates of my probation. So uh, most of my colleagues probably went to college because that was just the thing that you did, or they were looking to pursue intellectual questions or fulfill their life in some way. I went to stay out of jail. You know, I had to take these classes. 
um, yeah, I had to take these two classes, and I took those two and did really well in them and took a couple of more and started doing really well and um, started to slowly but surely get the idea that an academic life and the life of the mind um, was really what I wanted to do with myself. Um, so, I mean, that's that's basically my story. I, uh, I, I took those initial two classes at a community college um, in New Hampshire, not really intending on doing much else, um, but just sort of kept going along with it. And I, I realized that there were some practical um, implications of success in school. For instance, uh, my first semester was in the summer of 2002 um, semester, and I got A's in both of my classes. And my uh, probation curfew was... Um, extended from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. So now I could hang out with friends, go out for coffee, or, you know, go to a later movie or, or something like that. So um, there are some kind of practical applications of my success at that point. Um, but nothing I, I, you know, thought about for the future, for the long term. I was just taking the classes because, really, I had to. And then after that, you know, I was good at it. I didn't really have much else going on. Um so eventually I transferred from the community college I started at to a four-year school in the spring of 2004. And by that point, I had sort of established really good work habits, a really good work ethic, and established sort of um, the type of lifestyle I needed to be successful academically. So it just sort of kind of continued on from there. Uh, within a year and a half of going to a four-year school, I was already thinking about going to uh going to graduate school or going to law schools or something like that. Um, in the summer of 2005, I did this research program uh, called the McNair um, Undergraduate Research Program. It's for, uh, for students, non-traditional students, uh, students who are first-generation college students, um, minority students. It helps them get into graduate programs um, and just help to increase the diversity of a PhD is awarded at American institutions. So I did that summer of 2005, and um, that really helped to prepare me for graduate school, let me know what it was all about, what I would have to do um, in, in order to be a successful candidate for graduate school. So I completed that program and started applying to graduate programs in the fall of 2005, my senior year um, in college up in New Hampshire. And Kind of from there, just went on to graduate school and sort of the normal kind of graduate experience. Excellent. That is fantastic. And we have a lot of young people listening to the show, and I get questions and emails and inboxes from them all the time. Um, would you mind giving them a few words of encouragement, especially those that may have um, experience some difficulties and just need a little bit of motivation, you know, to keep moving on and to to reach the higher, you know, achievements and, you know, reach their goals. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always tell people if somebody like me can go to a school like the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and get a Ph.D. in history, then anybody can do it. I mean, I think of a circumstance that would have held me back from doing this, and I've experienced it. Drug-addicted parents, um, living in poverty, extreme poverty uh, my entire childhood, at times being homeless, being in foster care, um, 
And then, of course, getting addicted to drugs myself when I was about 16, 17 years old, um, ending up in jail. If a person like me who has gone through all the things that I've gone through and who has made all of the uh, boneheaded decisions that I've made in my life, if I can go to college, be successful, get into a graduate program, then really anybody can, right? Um, if those barriers aren't going to hold me back, then um, there's no reason they should hold back anybody else. And, you know, I found that on this on this journey, you know, there are a lot of different things that I could point to and say, well, that was really necessary for my success or that. Um, but really it comes down to some very, very simple things. One, when I got out of jail, I started waking up really early in the morning, and I would just work all day. You know, it, it sounds really, you know, simple, oh, just wake up early and work hard all day. It can be hard to put it into practice, but that's really what's necessary. You know, that's what was necessary for me. And then just um, to kind of be humble about what I was doing um, and to be humble about the sort of challenges facing me. You know, when I was out there dealing drugs, running the streets, I didn't have a shred of humility in me. I thought I knew everything. Anytime somebody warned me about the consequences that were going to going to come from my actions, I just kind of brushed it off. You know, when I got out, I was a lot more humble. I asked people for help. Um, you know, I asked professors for help. I, I always knew that I didn't have the answers and that I needed to go to people who were smarter than me, who were more experienced than me, who could sort of guide me um, along my various paths. Excellent. That is fantastic. And one of the things that I always stress to people is that if you've made mistakes in the past, and even if people make mistakes now, it's okay. This is how you grow. This is how you learn. And just listening to your story there, you know, this should be great motivation for a lot of people that, you know, despite the circumstances, you know, there are ways to achieve and overcome those circumstances. But, you know, I just believe that, you know, we should grow and we should learn. And you wrote a book, those of you who are interested in learning more about Dr. Cameron's experience, he has a book. Um, tell them the name of your book. And you can get it on Amazon, everybody. Yes, it's uh, The Many Lives of Chris Cameron. Um, it's available uh, as an ebook right now just on Amazon Kindle. Um, however, Kindle is a great application, so you don't actually have to own a Kindle. You can have an iPhone, a laptop, a desktop, anything, and just download the application. Um, and there I detail, you know, everything I've been talking about over the past few minutes, I, I go into much greater detail in and, and discussing the challenges that I faced and um, my thoughts as I kind of went through them and my maturation process and the things that it took um, to get where I'm at today. Excellent, guys. So go out and check out his book. And, you know, I've posted the links to some of the articles that he's put out there. So we're getting ready to get to some of the meat of this <laughs> interview here. And one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, the first one is, what is the origin of black free thought and what has this impact been on society? And in addition to that, what distinguishes it from mainstream free thought? Mm -hmm. uh, the origin of black free thought is somewhat complex. You know, um, there's no one thing that we can point to. In a lot of the literature that I've seen so far, one of the things that's always pointed to um, is, of course, responses to racial inequality 
and responses to the institution of slavery. Now, granted, people focus less on slavery as an origin of black free thought, um, but I definitely think that the evidence is there, evidence in terms of uh, folklore, in terms of uh, slave seculars, work songs, things like that, but also anecdotal evidence from um, preachers such as Daniel Payne um, showing the, the existence and um, strength in some areas of black free thought during the era of slavery. So um, I think just the response to the many aspects of the institution of slavery is an origin of black free thought. For instance, uh, Frederick Douglass, who never became a free thinker, but did become a, a more liberal Christian uh, over the course of his life, um, he rejected traditional Christianity, mainstream Christianity of his time, and thousands upon thousands of other slaves did so as well because of what they saw as the hypocrisy of slave masters going to church on Sunday, um, praying, even preaching in some instances, and then the practices that they would um, engage in on the plantation. So that that certainly provides, um, the institution of slavery certainly provides one major kind of foundation for black free thought, um, a foundation that's been downplayed in the literature. And, you know, I'm just starting to get into the research for my book, uh, but I think it might be more important than we think is the mainstream American free thought movement as well as uh, the American Enlightenment. I do think that the ideology of the Enlightenment um, and the work of American free thinkers like Robert Ingersoll, um, their work, their speeches, their publications, I think also sort of influence the rise of black free thinking. Excellent, excellent. Well, that leads me to one of your blog spots that, you know, you had um, put up. What is unique about black free thought? Uh, well, I think Dr. Hutchinson, Sakibu Hutchinson, probably highlights this best um, in her work, Moral Combat, where she, she, so, she shows that black free thought is, um, it's, part, it's different from the mainstream free thought movement in its sort of wariness a bit about um, scientism or the sort of raising of science um, and reason so, so much, especially because of things like the Tuskegee experiments and the way that science has been used to justify racism within um, American history. So that, that part is certainly unique about black free thought, but also the, the concern that she highlights of black free thinkers' um, engagement in politics, engagement in contemporary economic issues. That's also um, a unique aspect of black free thought and something that, that black free thinkers are really bringing to the table, right? So, uh, and have been doing so for a number of decades, you know. So even, you know, really before I'd say the Harlem Renaissance time, most, uh, if you look at American free thinking in general, it was really just concerned with the problem of God's existence on sort of an ontological level. But African-American free thinkers also brought in, um, brought in this aspect where questioning God wasn't just sort of a, a philosophical exercise, but it was also rooted in um, contemporary political, economic, and social justice concerns. Um, so those aspects, uh, a different view of science, but also the... Um, 
the political and economic engagement, I think, is something that African-Americans have, um, have really brought to this movement. Excellent, excellent. And do you have any free thought heroes? Are there any people that stand out that you use as, uh, how can I put it, the people that you look up to, people that you herald from the free thought community? Um, I definitely look up to Harry Haywood uh, quite a bit. He's sort of uh, an unknown uh, or relatively unknown uh, early 20th century um, intellectual. Um, he was involved in uh, the socialist movement during that time period. He was also heavily involved in labor organizing. Um, he's somebody who came to free thought through a kind of circuitous route. He discusses um, actually rejecting belief in God after the whole uh, episode with Halley's Comet um, back in 1910. Everybody had heard that this comet was was coming close to the Earth's surface, was possibly going to hit the Earth. Um, there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of talk about the end times and, um, and things like that, people converting and uh, notions about uh, God's vengeance on earth and fry, fire and brimstone preaching. And, of course, the comet didn't hit. And after this, you say, well, you know, they were all lying to me. You know, all this talk of fire and brimstone preaching and, and all that, it was just lies to sort of get us excited. And he says after that, that was basically the end of his religion, right? He, he couldn't really believe in God after that. But he still... Um, he, he couldn't really leave it there, right? So it, it was sort of the end of his religion, but he still kind of engaged in this intellectual journey where he read some of the prominent um, atheists and agnostic thinkers of his time period, like Robert Ingersoll, um, who Susan Jacobi actually has written a great book about very recently. Um, you know, he read some of his lectures and kind of moved into agnosticism and eventually uh, moved into full-blown atheism. So... I just I really um admire his uh his political radicalism um and just his his kind of intellectual journey. Excellent, excellent. I am particular to Hubert Henry Harrison. You know, oh, wonderful yeah. man. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, tell me about this. Let's talk a little bit about the Harlem Renaissance. And, you know, one thing that I've been talking about over the past couple of years and, you know, uh, directing people to go and read more about the Harlem Renaissance, but let's talk about the impact of free thought on the Harlem Renaissance. You know, there are quite a few of us, and we didn't get the credit that we needed or that we deserved, if you will, during the Harlem Renaissance. But what impact did black free thought have on the Harlem Renaissance? Oh, it was very significant. Um, I really don't think that you can adequately capture what the Harlem Renaissance is all about if you don't talk about African-American free thought. Um, you just can't do it. You look at Zoran Hurston's Dust Tracks on a Road or uh, Richard Wright's novel The Outsider, you know, the many works of uh, James Baldwin or, um, you know, the poetry of Langston Hughes. All of these um, great sort of canonical African-American writers were um, – sort of immersed in American free thought and really represent um, the origins and complexity and nuance of this movement, right? I think 
you know, talking about free thinking only gives us a better understanding not only of the Harlem Renaissance, um, but of the foundations of 20th century American history. Exactly, exactly. And if you can explain the impact that black free thought had on the civil rights movement, but also, you know, maybe expound on how the civil rights movement did not begin with Martin Luther King. You said a lot Mm -hmm. of people are under that misconception that the civil rights movement started and ended with Martin Luther King, but if you could just expound, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of my old professors at Chapel Hill, Jacqueline Hall, um, for the past, you know, 15 15 years or so, has been at the forefront of of a historiographical movement um, to expand our scope of what the civil rights movement really is, right? This this whole notion of the long civil rights movement. Um, and if we take uh, Hall's framework, we can extend that to the work of African-American activists. So we see that people um, such as W.B. Du Bois in the early 20th century, Hubert Harrison, who you mentioned, um, Harry Haywood, A. Philip Randolph, and others were extremely active um, in working for social, economic, and racial justice from the 19-teens all the way um, up through the 1950s. And, and in some cases, like A. Philip Randolph, they were active for that entire period. Um, so, you know, it just gives us a different perspective on what the civil rights movement was. Right? When we think about it, we usually think about the civil rights movement from sort of a theistic perspective, right? Um, the notion that uh, religious individuals were working towards a beloved community. Um, but it wasn't all about a theistic framework. You had a lot of um, important activists bringing a non-theistic, a humanistic, or atheistic or agnostic framework um, to what they were doing and basing their activism off of um, you know, notions of civil disobedience that ran back a hundred years to uh, the writings of Henry David Thoreau, um, rather than the writings of theologians or um, rather than scripture. Um, so, just as they did for the Harlem Renaissance, I think um, African American freethinkers have made vital contributions to civil rights and to to different facets of. Um, the civil rights movement, right? You had Du Bois, who really had his hands everywhere, right, Um, Mm -hmm. in the labor organizing and um, in organizing newspapers and opposing colonialism around the world. Um, Then you had people like Huey P. Newton involved in the SNCC movement, right? Um, People like James Foreman or... Um, you know, other people in the early 20th century like Harrison. So they were involved in the civil rights movement, but in in many different facets and many different components of it, Um, and also just bringing their their different complex perspectives. Exactly, exactly. And one thing that a lot of people um, aren't aware of is that Black free thought did have an impact on the Black Panthers and what was happening with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords and the other groups like that. And a lot of the programs that we see today were basically expounded because of the Black Panthers, like the Breakfast Program and the local access clinics and so on. So if you can just expound on how free thought also had an impact on the Black liberation, yeah, the Black liberation, the Black power movement. That would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one of the things that 
that I've been finding in my research so far is just sort of a, a very close tie between um, black free thinking and black nationalism in the 1960s uh, and in the 1970s. And black nationalism can, of course, be uh, something of a religious ideology, but in other instances it's also a very secular ideology, right, focusing on the here and now, rejecting an otherworldly religious perspective, um, trying to do things that are going to improve uh, humans' lives, whether it's giving people access to land um, or just making sure that people can practice their cultural, uh, cultural elements uh, without interference with others. So in a, in a number of different ways, um, sort of the secular black nationalism that was a part of uh, the Black Panther Party and um, organizations such as SNCC was very much informed uh, by this kind of humanistic framework of black free thinkers. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And, you know, again, I think it's important that, you know, this information is shared and that people get a better understanding of our history and the impact that we've had on the world, and especially with the black free thinkers. And one of the things that I've noticed is that over the past, you know, really five years, but in particular the past two, three years, there have been more and more of us coming out, and this seems to be cyclical, but more and more of us coming out and giving people the courage to come out as a black free thinker or a black non-believer or skeptic or what have you. And I guess my question for you would be in regards to today's black free thought movement, if you will, what impact do you believe that it's having on the black community or black thought and consciousness? Um, well, well, like you mentioned, I think this uh, this increasing, I guess, coming out, if you will, or converting um, almost towards agnosticism, atheism, and free thinking in general, um, it, it's it's definitely a dialectical process, right? The more people that you see doing it, the more it sort of influences others to do it. So I think that's really important. Um, but also the, the many bloggers who are out there and who are blogging about different aspects of black free thought history, of, um, of their own history, of challenges that they've encountered. These are the types of things that also will kind of strengthen the movement um, in the future. So I, I think that we've definitely, um, we've definitely come a long way uh, over the past 25 years or so we're starting to have something of an institutional base um, or network within the movement with, you know, African Americans for Humanism and um, and different institutions, uh, different institutions throughout the country have definitely made this something of a more robust movement. Uh, but more work is certainly necessary. You know, when I started, I just kind of got interested in my uh, book on black free thinkers for really for personal reasons and after reading a couple of blogs and and then as I got more into the research I was really surprised to see the dearth um of literature on this movement so as much as um there has been kind of progress over the past 20 to 25 years um I think we can do a lot more and we're starting to see um a lot more a lot more people writing about issues important to the free thought community, a lot more people blogging and um I think that's just going to to increase as time goes on. 
Exactly. I agree. We're definitely in our infancy and, you know, it's growing and it's refreshing. And I'm just happy that more and more people are starting to do the research and to understand the great impact that black free thinkers and non-believers over the years have had. We have Raina and Deborah on the line, and I know Raina had a question for you. Um, yeah, I have a I have another question before I ask that question. I may or may ask that question. I might just try to contact you um, uh, via Twitter or something. But um, okay. I just wanted to ask you what um, what your thoughts are on sort of the responsibilities of those of us who are free, you know, black free thinkers. Do we have a responsibility to the community to create institutions that um, serve the needs of the black community that have traditionally been uh, performed by the church? Yeah. Um, I personally think that uh, as free thinkers, we have a responsibility to kind of spread our ideas, to spread our message. Um, and just as humanists in general, for those of us who consider ourselves humanists, um, to mm-hmm. actually something to improve human society. You know, so okay. black free thinking is is a very large umbrella. You know, and I hope in mm-hmm. my book I'll be able to capture the diversity and complexity of the movement. So you have some people who are black atheists, and then other people who are black atheist humanists. You know, the black atheists mm-hmm. just don't believe in God. Um, and that's perfectly fine, whereas the black atheist humanist feels that that um, they have to do something to improve human society, um, to live better with nature, uh, to make life uh, more palatable for human beings. So mm-hmm. I consider myself a black humanist atheist uh, or black atheist humanist, however you want to phrase it. Um, so not only do I uh, reject theism, but I also openly embrace humanism. And I, I do think it is um, it is a responsibility for humanists to, to do whatever you can with the means at your disposal uh, to try to make lives better for other people and, um, in, in my perspective, other black people in general. Okay. So um, that answers that first question. I'll, I'll raise my hand if uh, I have another one. Um, so thank you mm-hmm. for answering that. Oh sure. Okay, Rain. I thought you were gonna ask him about. Uh, no, I, I will. I will. I will. Okay. I, I just. I just wanted to. I just. I just didn't want to dominate the conversation or anything. So, if you have other questions, you can go ahead and ask those. No, go ahead and ask about liberation. Okay. So I was. Okay. So I was. I. I it's probably a very weird sort of question, but. <laughs> It just occurred to me that I was reading through some of your work, and I just finished reading um, Sister Citizen and some other books, and um, I was thinking about um, black liberation theology and how um, particularly early on in, in black liberation theology there was um, there, there was sort of an absence of, of discussion about sort of um, sexism and sort of patriarchy and how that yeah. sort of plays out in um, in black theology. And I was wondering if you also noticed that there is, is that maybe in some circles there also seems to be, um, while, they, while they don't have a problem necessarily talking about 
um, through that and how it ties into racism and, and, and that sort of issues within the black community, but um, maybe they're a little bit um, reluctant <laughs> to explore those issues and how they intersect with gender, um, you know, or, you know, sexual preference or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're getting to the heart of really the black atheist critique of liberation theology, right? Because yeah. there, there's, cer- there's certainly a lot in liberation theology that black humanists would agree with, right? Um, mm-hmm. This, you know, this, this notion, notions of social justice, notions of rejecting an otherworldly religion, um, notion, the notion that religion has to be useful in the here and now. Um, I think mm-hmm. a lot of black humanists can get with those ideas, right? Because right. Mm-hmm. the so the way that we approach the world. But when we look at theism in general, um, just as a general kind of system of knowledge. Theism, whether it's liberation theology, whether it's something else, a theistic framework is always going to set up some sort of us versus them, right? Mm. Um, It's always going to set up some sort of dichotomy, even with liberation theology saying Mm. that God is black or womanist theology saying that God is a woman, that has the potential to alienate people who aren't black or who aren't women, right? Right. So that that's really the, the sort of inadequacies um I think that a lot of black freethinkers find with uh with those theological strands is that even though they they do try to write social and economic injustices um through theological thinking, um, they still take a theological perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and that's and and that's and that's sort of the, the point of my question is, you know, I I sort of see in some aspects, um, you know, in in the free thought community that there's sort of this prototypical idea of what a an atheist or what a humanist should be, and that those those definitions don't necessarily reflect, um, you know, uh, a, a position of opposition to sexism and you know, transphobia and, you know, homophobia and all of the other sorts of, you know, negative sort of oppressive, you know, uh, ideologies that exist, you know. And so mm-hmm. that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that will change and that, you know, as we get more people on board and, and thinking about these things differently that maybe we can sort of change that. But it, it's yeah, one of yeah. the things that has bothered me being on this side, you know. It it, it kind of it brings to mind some of my own work on the abolitionist movement, right? In that um, 18th and early 19th century African American abolitionists often felt that, you know, and they were usually coming from a Christian perspective or a, you know from a Republican a political philosophical perspective, but they felt that they had to be um, they had to be examples of what living a Christian life is, of what being an equal human being is. It's like they took this onus on themselves of having um, to live kind of really morally pure lives and and all of that as this sort of argument against racial um, inequality. You know, they people like Richard Allen or um, Absalom Jones or, you know, famous abolitionists like that felt that um, – if blacks were portrayed in a negative light when it comes to morals, when it comes to crime, anything like that, then it was going to do sort of 
um, injustice to the entire movement. And um, not, of course, the stakes aren't quite as high um, when comparing it to abolitionism, but I think, you know, for black free thinkers, there's almost this same uh, perspective, right, that we have to be sort of moral examples um, or people are just going to think that all free thinkers are dissolute and um, have no moral compass whatsoever and don't care about anything except not believing in God, you know. Um, so it, it kind of seems similar to that, to that situation mm-hmm. with the people I study. <clears throat> yeah, so there's and, politics of respectability and sort of the stereotypes and stuff yeah, come back, yeah, exactly. yeah, come back into play to sort of, you know, uh, confine us to a degree. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Thank you. So, Excellent. We have Dr. Fonza on the line. Dr. Fonza, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for uh, giving me that technical support, Kim. (laughs) (laughs) I was lost over here. I wanted to hear Dr. Cameron's, uh, you know, introduction. I miss all of it because I can't get on online for some reason to the blog talk site. Well, we've covered a number of things. We've we've covered black free thought um, Mm -hmm. during Harlem Renaissance, black free thought and its impact on the civil rights movement and the actual beginnings of the civil rights movement. And we've talked a little bit about black free thought and its viewpoints or critiques, if you will, of black liberation theology. So we've gone over some of the Mm -hmm. basics. And Dr. Cameron has told us a lot about his life, but, you know, in essence, you know, he was talking about social justice, and I kind of want to bring it back to that. And what happens is in our community, in African-American community, religion has such a stronghold. And this is something that I've been saying for a while, that black free thinkers, humanists, you know, non-believers, what have you, we, in order to make any type of real impact or inroads into the black community, we really do not have a choice but to work with the black church. And so I guess my question to Dr. Cameron as well as yourself is, you know, do you agree that we must forge some type of alliance and build some type of bridge to work with the black church in regards to making an impact in the black community? Um, I think well, it's, go ahead, yeah, Dr. Cameron. I want, I want to hear it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's great in theory, um, but from what I've encountered uh, in terms of discussions with black religious people, it's just a real deep distrust um, of black freethinkers, right? So, I, I mean, I think a lot of us would be willing to work with churches. Um, I'm not I'm not sure how willing they would be to work with us, right? With, without without the um, the evangelization attempts that always come. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, I have yeah. plenty of family members that are religious, and they know I'm not religious, but always pray around me, and then when I leave, try to pray over me or, or stuff like that. So, <laughs> would we would we encounter that trying to to build relationships with black churches? I, I definitely think so. I think it's great in theory, working with black churches, but that is not the only institution um, that could gain us inroads into the black community, right? We could go to um, schools 
that primarily have African American populations and offer maybe offer volunteer after school programs for students mm-hmm. who are struggling. I agree. Um, you know, we could off you know open up tutoring centers um, for schools or help students out with college prep or open up a food drive in um, a black community, right? So, yeah, mm-hmm. churches do a lot of these things. Um, partnering up with churches would be an easy way um, to sort of gain roads into the community. I'm skeptical that um, it could happen to the degree we'd like, but we can bypass churches, I think, and go um, kind of go right in. Yeah, yeah I, don't think, oh. I, I agree with you. I, I was going to say I agree with you because I don't think that the church strategy is really going to benefit our agenda in terms of social justice that much because there aren't, on the whole, there aren't that many progressive black churches out there that would be willing to work with us. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, on the whole, I mean, most of them are very conservative, particularly in, in, in terms of social agendas. So you would have a hard time dealing with any of them. I, you know, I could do. I could see. Only way I could see that. Oh, how y'all doing? This is the boy. <laughs> oh, how are you? All right. Uh, I only way I could see that if they were willing to um, get deeper into uh, the history. You know, they they don't analyze the Bible. They look at it as a something great. And and they don't even look at it thinking about it, you know, just mm-hmm. thinking. And and if they could just sit, they they won't have a conversation with you, um, a decent conversation. And and to to step out of the mindset of of God and and get into thinking like you would be doing um, a research paper on a, on a. On something, you know. I mean, they don't do that, you know. Uh, we had a. It was. I was reading. I don't forgot the guy's name. A preacher back in the, like the late 1800s, 1900s, and he was here, right, in in Virginia, and he 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 made a statement. He don't even believe in science, you know. And and I always mm-hmm. wondered, you know, whether, you know, why we don't have a lot of scientists back. You know, I was wondering whether people in church. Push that that you know push that children to be scientists and you, you know it's it's a lot of negativity that they're not ready to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're scared yeah. to go. They're scared to go into the history of what they believe in. Right, uh, and you, which plays into the board, uh a blog I just posted this uh, well last night or this morning I can't remember. Because I'm a night person, but um, the blog I posted was called "Ditch the Bible and Journey to Love," and um, so I talk I talk about you know this history that you talk that you mentioned, you know the fact that the God of the Bible, particularly, um, was a very violent, unpredictable, uh, sexist, you know, yeah. uh, being being. And um, what's interesting is this morning, very early, I received a phone call from one of my uh, sorority sisters. She's my line sister. I pledge Delta. And uh, it was pretty early because most people know I don't take calls before 10 a.m. <laughs> but I picked up and I was like, what's going on? And, you know, we 
just said our greetings, and then she said, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that piece. She said, you know, it was really deep, and um, I wanted to comment, but, you know, that really wasn't the place for me to comment on it. But um, what you were saying about the love that you found, the love I have for myself, and I found it, I, uh, as I described it on the blog, I found it through a, a, a love, loving relationship, a mutually loving relationship she says she had with God. And that's that's the kind of relationship she says she has with God. So we talked about a little bit about the disconnect between, you know, the God of the Bible and and other sacred texts too. We can include them, mm-hmm. but or so-called sacred texts and mm-hmm. the God of um, the God that many people construct in their heads. Mm-hmm. You know, the God mm-hmm. that they are worshiping, uh, which for them isn't necessarily connected to that. They don't want to acknowledge the connection. And Mm -hmm. going back to what you were saying, Dr. Cameron, it is extremely difficult to work with anyone um, who doesn't want to, you know, deal with that reality, that that connection, that the problem, uh, if you will, even the problem of evil. And so, I, I, I think it's also kind of counterproductive in a sense, right? What? Because I think it's also somewhat counterproductive um, in a yeah. sense because part of the thing that the Black Free Thought Movement is trying to do is offer an alternative to churches, right? So even yeah. if uh, some way we did, we we were able to put aside our differences and work together for um, the good of the people. In essence, we. Um, be sort of co-signing the other work that they're doing, right? Right, um, right. Which, which most of us disagree with, you know, inculcating right. theistic mindset um, in people. So I think one of the things that we really want to do is not not even just to work with churches, but to show that black free-thinking organizations, whether they're on college campuses um, or within communities, that these can be, um, better alternatives to churches, right? You can come and get fed, and you don't have to pretend to believe in something that you don't believe in, you know. Right. Um, you don't have to participate in the church uh, just to get some food or just to try to get a scholarship. Right. Yeah, but I think, I think one other thing, though, I want to say, though, uh, is how important it is for me, you know, even with having a conversation with, you know, a... a a person who I know and I care about um, to somehow stay in dialogue with, you know, that it's very important for me to maintain that dialogue even though uh, she doesn't, uh, she believes and I, and I don't. And I say that, mm-hmm. you know, to make an analogy with regard to the free thought community or black atheists, nonbelievers, and the black church, because I think there has to be a dialogue uh, with those who are at least willing to talk, to struggle through some of the, the um, you know, the, the, the debate, you know, because that's going to happen, you know, uh, you know, that's there. And, you know, not necessarily say, oh, we will have to work together, but there is a work that has to be done, or I, I would like to see done, where there's a space for uh, working out some of that that uh, 
you know, that dichotomy and finding mm-hmm. a way because I was watching the Morehouse um Spellman, Morehouse rather commencement this morning on you know, online. And even, you know, Barack Obama, here he is, President Barack Obama, using so much from, um, you know, belief to connect with that group of of men, that that institution. Mm -hmm. I don't imagine how, you know what I'm saying? It's just very difficult to imagine how large black institutions, we're not just talking about the black church. That's not the only group uh, that has a, if you will, stronghold on the minds of of young and older, but primarily young people, shaping them. And uh, so somehow that, you know, that dialogue has to take place. And while on the one hand I don't like when the president uh, um, alludes to all of that belief, the language of belief and, and the framework of belief, um, he also then challenges that with some of his policies, you know, he he threw in a line about men loving their wives and their partners and this, you know, and uh, the boyfriends. Well, that was mm-hmm. like a folk. I don't know if he meant it on purpose. That's a huge faux pas at Morehouse College, which is an all male school. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I just throw that out there that somehow, for for those of us who might be willing to sit down, uh, in that case, you know, I put myself in that category. Um, and struggle a bit in an environment that wouldn't necessarily be about, you know, doing work together or partnering per se, but trying to come to an understanding of social justice. I mean, I I, I, I can agree of, with that to a certain extent. I was just saying, I, I, but I would say this though: I think it would be silly of us for to to go into those situations knowing that the sources you know, critiques that we can make about uh-huh. the church and its role in a lot of the, you know, sort of social justice problems that we face and, and their failings, you know what I mean, and expect them to, to work with us. So I think, and, and, you know, what to go along with Dr. Cameron said, I think we do have to look at working mostly outside yeah. of, of those organizations and those groups. Yeah. Right, and that's what, you know, we've been talking about, especially over the past couple of years, and I was saying that the secular community, we need to be able to offer an alternative. So um, with the Black Skeptics Group, Black Skeptic Group in Los Angeles, Dr. Hutchinson's group, they have the scholarship program. They will be um, having the ceremony in July, and they're giving away four scholarships, um, in particular to LGBTQ um, youth, that came from um, rather difficult situations, so whether it was homelessness or foster care or what have you. So, you know, they're targeting that particular group. But going back to what Dr. Cameron was saying about, you know, engaging the community, like with the tutorial programs, the scholarship programs, the food giveaway programs, I've talked extensively about the Emerson Good Samaritan Food Donation Act and how we can go into each city and start these programs up, and all you have to do is build a relationship with the local restaurants, um, have the indemnity contracts there so that they will basically sign away any liability. But this bill allows for us to go in and to be able to take these meals and give it out to the community. 
And, you know, that's something that we're, that I'm working on. I'm trying to get implemented here in Chicago. But there are ways, in, you know, correct, that we can engage, the you know, the community without having to go through the church. It's just that, you know, I guess with me, you know, looking at it from a different perspective, I want to implement those programs going directly into the community. But also, you know, I also wanted to build a relationship somewhat with the church because not all churches are ignoring the community, but there are far too many who are. And that's why I say the secular community, we have to be the example. We have to go back into the community and do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because we believe that not helping people would send us to hell. There's a big difference between the two. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm not, I think it's like, I'm not in disagreement that there shouldn't be something alternative. I'm just saying any, any group you deal with, any traditional black group you're dealing with, or even an institution um, is going to have, you know, uh, a predominantly uh, religious uh, orientation to whatever they're doing. You know, I was looking at TV today about a a homeless program here in Atlanta. And, you know, so they were featuring the way these men, um, they don't go to church, but they do AA. Well, if you deal with AA, you're dealing with a religious framework, right? You're dealing with the God of, you know, the higher power, your God who's the higher power and stuff. So Mm -hmm. I'm just saying it is, and, and I don't, care whether or not um, they accept, right? I don't have the expectation that the church people (laughs) or the church speakers um, accept, uh, you know, free thoughts, free thinkers. That's no matter, you know, it it has more to do with with I would advocate for a dialogue regardless um, because, you know, there are lots of things about um, believers that I don't accept, you know, but that doesn't mean... We can't work together. Exactly. It's, it's tough. So, I mean, it's very, very hard. That's hard work, but I think it has to be done, yeah. Yeah, yeah Anthony Penn discusses that in his new book, The End of God Talk, um, uh-huh. where he talks about the free-thinking life as this sort of quest for complex subjectivity, and there are going to be a lot of things that we strive for, and we're going to not achieve them at all or achieve them only very imperfectly, um, but it makes that, you know, it gives meaning to that striving in the first place, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, on that level, I, I do agree that um, that there is something in attempting the work, even if it's not going to, to come out um, as you would ideally have it. Right. Right. Exactly. And, Dr. Cameron, you're working on a book um, in regards to black free thought. Well, you're working on a few books here, but um, do you mind sharing that with us? Uh, the title is simple, Black Free Thinkers. Uh, I'm glad nobody's taken it yet. Um, and I'm in a rush to I'm in a rush to research and write the book because I just can't imagine there's nobody else out there working on it. Um, but uh, I, I'm trying to do a few different things in this book. One, I um, I want to give a historical perspective to Black Free Thought. So there are a number of works that look at kind of contemporary Black Free Thought and um, the ways that religion has impacted Af- uh, the African American community, um, but I want to just look from really the 1830s um, to the present. So I have uh, six chapters. One looks at slavery, 
and black free thought in the 19th century. Another looks at the Harlem Renaissance. Um, another looks at the sort of long civil rights movement. Um, one at the black arts movement, one at the sort of institutional origins of black free thinking. And then um, the final chapter, just looking at really contemporary black free thought, probably a lot of analysis of blog entries, newspaper articles, even personal interviews. And uh, I'm really just trying to highlight the complexity, the nuances um, in this movement from the time of slavery uh, to the present. So uh, I'm in the research stage of the book right now. I'll be researching for about the next year or so, and I plan to start uh, drafting the manuscript, and hopefully I'll have one finished uh, by about the end of summer 2014. Excellent, excellent. And, you know, again, our doors are always open, and especially when you release the book. We want to have you back. But, you know, you can come back before then, so I don't want you to think that, you know, this was wonderful. And, you know, I thank you for, you know, coming to share with us today. And, again, you know, it, it was a great conversation. And with, do you have any parting words, any you know, anything you would like to share with us, something for us to think about, uh, any book suggestions? Uh, book suggestions. One that I'm not sure a lot of people have seen is uh, Michael Lackey's book, African American Atheists and Political Liberation. Um, it's it's meant for an audience of academics. The language is a bit dense, but I think he does a really good job of um, – of kind of highlighting the complexities in the thinking of some 20th century uh, free thinkers. He mainly focuses on the Harlem Renaissance, so he's looking primarily at Langston Hughes, um, Nella Larson, uh, and Richard Wright, as well as a couple of other writers. Um, but he just he, he does a very good job at explaining kind of what exactly atheism meant um, to these writers and what was sort of um, important about their contributions to atheist rhetoric in general. So that's um, that's one that I've just recently come across. It came out in um, 2007, but you know, prior you know prior to a couple of months ago, I haven't really heard much about it. So if anybody hasn't picked that up, I would, I would suggest it. Right. Yeah. Excellent. 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 Well, again, thank you so much for your time and you know, coming out to spend some time with us today. And we're looking forward to hearing more from you. And, again, guys, you know, I've posted Dr. Cameron's information, um, you know, on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Google+. And you can find this information from there. We're looking forward to seeing more blogs and narratives from you, Dr. Cameron. And, again, like I said, you know, the, our doors are always open. And thank you so much for taking time out to come and spend with us today. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you again in the not-so-distant future. Yeah, I look forward to it as well. Thank you very much for having me. Anytime, sir. Anytime, sir. You take care. Okay, you take care as well. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. But, yeah, guys, you know, go out and take a look at that book. I've posted it on my wall, and, you know, we want to go a little bit deeper into uh, the conversation about social justice. You know, he brought up some very good points, some excellent points, and this is something that we've talked about on the show in the past, and, I just think it's important, 
it's important that we go back out to the community, that we reach back out. Um, Dr. Fonz, are you still there? Uh, yeah, yeah, I just, you know, I didn't know if I needed to sign off or what, but yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, that's yeah. a good program. We had him on. I, I wasn't even aware of, of him, and I've been in Charlotte, like, in the last two months, you know, uh, well, last month, like, twice in the last month or so, so I can make it a point to get a hold of him and, and visit with him. Excellent, excellent. He gave a great point, and, you know, um, he spoke about Harry Haywood, and I'm going to have to do some research on him as well. But Dr. Cameron, so, um, you know, he made a lot of great points, so I'm definitely looking forward to his book and, you know, getting more into his blog and, you know, just like, you know, we do. And so, you know, I wanted to welcome him definitely into the community because when I ran across him, I'm like, I'm not familiar with this gentleman. And so, you know, I reached out and, you know, we conversed a little bit. And it's just wonderful. You know, again, like I said, more and more people are starting to come out and identify as humanists, free thinkers, atheists, non-believers, what have you. And, you know, it's very encouraging. And then to hear his story on how he came from a difficult and troubled, you know, um, youth and young adulthood, and he evolved into his, you know, um, you know, his intellectualism. And it's wonderful, you know, to hear stories like that and also to share that with other people so that they will know and understand that definitely, you know, uh, if you put your mind to it, you can achieve, you know, whatever it is that you so desire. I think we have Travis on the line with us now. Are you there, Travis? I am here. Thank you, Travis. <laughs> hey, i got to tell you right now, I was over here, uh, I was cooking, and I, so I couldn't talk, but when he mentioned uh, Robert Green Ingersoll and Frederick Douglass, I was happy as happy could be. <laughs> and when he, when, when y'all were talking about team met with churches, and he, and I forgot exact, his exact phrase, but it was something, basically he was saying, why you want to do that? <laughs> I thought that was wonderful, too. <laughs> because how long can you stand around them and, and, and not call out the BS? It's, it's really hard. It's really hard. Uh, right? And, and even, if you, even if you could be quiet, you would end up hurting yourself by rolling your eyes into a migraine headache. <laughs> exactly, exactly But the thing is, is that, you know, again, I guess I'm a little bit different For the simple fact that, you know, while I know that we're not going to make a lot of inroads with the church itself As far as trying to work with them You know, I at least want to give them the opportunity, if you will To, you know, try to work with us And it's, it's the whole thing, like I said, it's, it's interesting. Um, but we were making strides. We're making inroads. That's the part that really matters. And, you know, as he stated, you know, we are in our infancy. And, you know, we're growing. We're growing as a community, you know, because most people, again, are just finding the courage to come out and and say that they're, you know, humanists or non-believers. That's very true, Campbell. The, the yeah, that's thing. so true. Go ahead, go ahead, Jessica. Oh, that's so true. 
uh, when Jason Collins, the NBA player who just came out as gay like like two weeks ago, in his statement he said, uh, I'm black, uh, I'm gay, and something else, right? And white friends of mine, too, called me up and asked me why did he have to say he's black. He's black. And, yes. and I said, I said, well, it's, it's, it's kind of like probably uh, being atheist. I said, some black folks think that atheism is just a white thing. We're to be fair about it. While we could say, why would we want to do that in terms of working with black uh, well, people in the black church or uh, those associated with traditional black church or black church, period. Um, you know, we I could ask the same question of why we associate with white atheists who have uh, proven themselves over and over again to be very sexist, very racist, and unable to hear the the story of, of uh, the journey to atheism from a black orientation. Just the question alone, which says, why did he have to say that, is a question to silence, right? And if anybody um, is going to get it when it comes to allowing for uh, an ex- uh, a, a range of expressions in atheism, in disbelief, or whatever, it ought to be atheists, agnostics, you know, uh, free thinkers. So that would alarm me that someone would even have the question as if to say the use of that word should not be because part of whiteness and the construction of whiteness is that they don't have to say the word white, right? The word white does not have to be used, but whenever it's a, you know, when you look on the news, when a crime is committed by a white male often, they won't say white. Looking for a male, 33 years old, blah, blah, blah. And then, but you know, alternatively, when it's a black person who they're looking for, looking for a black male, uh, and that's associating that crime with a kind of human uh, deviance. So you're right. Is, you're right. Because so if they mention the white criminal every time the criminal was white, we'd go, "Oh, there goes another white criminal." But because they mention a black person, <laughs> then you see it. But but when they don't say who it is, oh, there's a crime committed by a, a male, you know, 32. Well, well, what color is it? Oh, they didn't mention he must be white. I mean, and that's, that's rough to have to go. Yeah, that's just not something, yeah, that's just not something we know by observation. That is something that sociologists and uh, even psychologists study. The Again, the, the, the labeling, the racialization of people. And, you know, whites believe typically that they are not racial, you know, they are not a race. Uh, and so to race them um, is considered an insult. Whereas oh, it hurts we their feelings. Are, yeah, but we are raced at all times in public discourse. And so exactly. I think it is important when we say, we, I am black, I am atheist, I am proud, I am woman. I mean, these are identifiers that we have had to live with on the positive and the negative side. So when we claim it for a positive, all of a sudden, how, why is it that those who are white want to take that away, right? Mm-hmm. No, 
we want to say, like the song says, I mean, that's the point in saying in that phrase, I'm black and proud, because the use of that word uh, is, is in the positive, is what, you know, is flipping the use of the word in the negative and in the negative. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my new concepts that I've been really working hard in my head on, uh, a comedy concept, is that there is no such thing as generic black, okay? And you'll see uh, white comedians and white shows, like even The Daily Show will do it sometimes, where the punchline will be generic black guy. Okay, uh-huh. and and so my concept I'm working on is that there is no such thing as generic black. Okay, I know thousands of black people; not any two of them are the same. Okay, but because when someone doesn't want to get to know you, then they can just throw generic black on you and somehow make an assumption about who you are. Just like you can't put generic atheist or agnostic on me and then persecute me for the actions of atheists in the past. That's what that, that's what is uh, often attempted to do, right? I, I know about you atheists and how y'all did over in whatever country where there was, you know, a dictator just like any other country. Well, you can't put that off on me. I'm just talking about uh, I heard what you had to say, and I don't believe none of that. Uh, next, you know, give me something else. You know, uh, and, you know a perfect and, example I, of that. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to, I was going to, I was going to, I was agreeing with you. Go ahead. I'm done. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say a perfect example of that is Bill Maher. He just, he incited the ire, if you will, of um, the comedian. uh, Wayne Brady. Wayne Wayne Brady. And Wayne Brady got angry and told him that he would beat his ass in public. Because, you know. Mm -hmm. He said he would beat his ass in public because. When Bill Maher sometimes will be talking about how he wants to see Obama be a tougher Obama, he wants to see the black side of Obama, not the Wayne Brady side, and he's done that like a couple of times. And Wayne Brady's like, hey, man, why you got to keep using my name in reference to a soft Obama? Okay, if you want to see how black I am, next time I see you, I'm going to whoop your ass. And then he said, but I can't do that because Bill Maher will sue me uh, take my house and my daughter be living in a box. Right. That's what he said. Okay, okay. He said, but he's saying, hey man, but and that's what I'm and that's what I'm saying. Bill Maher, very very liberal, but he has a generic black references. Right? Yeah, he, got a generic, he has a generic good black. He has a generic yeah, bad black, right? A generic thuggy black. Okay, I don't have that. Right, but that's what I'm saying. That's exactly the point. When we say this is what you do, we are part of the church. We we must also consider what it is like to work with a very predominantly white atheist community that doesn't get it, that is uh, unaware of its racist, sexist kind of uh, uh, baggage, uh, and it's right. part of the that they're not calling someone a, a nigger. Uh, or bad name doesn't mean that they have fully understood, uh, if you will, uh, what, you know, the the implications of their language, um, of their actions, and how uh, maybe alienating or isolating they would be on this end. So, Chuck, quite honest with you, I'd be be 
familiar and more willing to enter into a a community, uh, black uh, traditional black church community, and struggle there than I would be when it comes to struggling with a white uh, atheist community that hasn't even begun to grasp, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to racial, um, uh, again, racial stereotyping, language, sexism. And, and Bill Maher is, my goodness, how many black women has he dated and has made extremely sexist derogatory remarks about the black women that, and the reason he's involved right. with black women. That is a part yeah, of Yeah, when he's doing a... A negative black woman thing. He'll always bring. He, he did it on Friday. He brought up Little Kim. And I'm like, how do you bring up Little Kim? It's 2013, man. But what I would suggest is, just like there are certain types of black folks, there are certain types of white folks too. So if you're in a sure, if you're in like a, a, a an Anne Rand type of athe, white atheist, yeah, they're going to be greedy, selfish <laughs> reasons not to share. Okay, right. just like if you, but if you got some. You know some uh, uh, heavy progressive liberals. It's a whole uh, atheist. It's a whole different um, type of conversation. Okay, but what I exactly. um, there are sometimes and there are sometimes some of the worst offenders, the heavy liberals. Uh, maybe maybe yeah, not. So I said sometimes and say all the time because meaning if you believe that you have evolved past the point of. Any kind of uh, again r- racial um, stereotyping or bigotry, then that's even worse than someone who you know what I'm saying who, who's open with it. You know, I know exactly what you're saying because um, when um, you're what's the um, the caller you had on? I mean the um, the doctor your uh, author guy you yeah, had on Dr. earlier. Cameron. Dr. Cameron. When he Dr. mentioned when in like successive sentences he mentioned Frederick Douglass and uh, uh, Robert Green Ingersoll, I posted in the chat room the quote from Frederick Douglass, which said, he said that out of all the men of my acquaintance, only two could I be around without feeling as though they felt superior to me, Abraham Lincoln and Robert Green Ingersoll. And so you're right. Yeah, right. If you're you're sitting there thinking that you're superior to me, okay, And even if you are agreeing with me politically, yeah, that's corny. Yeah. It's like, um, here, I'll tell you this, Kim. Uh, I was in Idaho, and I was trying to ask the crowd to, like, move up, you know, close to the stage and not leave the empty seats in front of the stage. And there was a white dude with a hat, and he just looked at me, didn't respond, and just kind of, like, tipped his beer up, right? This is Idaho, right? And I said to him, and I said to him, I said, uh, I said, you know, a lot of my black friends were wondering why I was going to Idaho to do some shows, right? And I told them, I said, I'm not worried because if I'm someplace and the people in the room think they're better than me because, because of my skin color, I know I'm the smartest motherfucker in the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, if you think you're you know, better than me. The whole idea that atheism, you know, and as in any other ism for that matter, or any other again framework of doing and engaging the world, um, doesn't mean doesn't keep one from being blind to you know to one um, kind of uh, well, I mean, it, racism and sexism are forms of indoctrination as well. 
and that we are all exposed to them. So if my part one of my theories is unless you are doing the work, right, to to divest yourself and decolonize yourself of that uh, indoctrination, more than likely sooner or later, you know, it comes out, and uh, and it doesn't make someone an evil, nasty person per se, but it does no. mean that. There is work to be done. You know, but oh, yeah. for those who believe they have no work to do, that's those are the ones I try to get away from. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I on, but it plays on both sides of the coin because you. Okay, so you know, let's 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 jump to the other side of the equation here. You have different, you know, types of black people that are in this movement as well, and what I've recognized is that the quote-unquote safe black people are the ones that um, will just say they're cherished a little bit more. And the majority of the quote-unquote safe blacks in this particular community, they do everything in their power to not say anything that will offend or antagonize um, anyone or the people, the powers that be. But there are times when you have to critique and call out some of the behaviors because we will see no change. We will see no change in what we're trying to do. And it also, it also absolves them of any responsibility, which is why, you know, when Dr. Cameron, you know, and Dr. Fonda were, you know, were speaking earlier about the social justice. Social justice. This is why I'm saying atheism plus is looking more and more appealing to me because they do want to engage social justice and there are a lot of people in this community on both sides of the you know, the equation here that are trying desperately to avoid that conversation and I just do not understand why. Right. Well, Okay, um, I was going to say, because it would be challenging a lot of their own beliefs, you know? I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying that to suggest that every person who opposes social justice within the atheist movement is racist or sexist or homophobic, but I think we all happen to know that there are quite a lot of them that are, mm-hmm. you know? And even people who are not explicitly racist or sexist or homophobic or what have you, a lot of them still have these biases that they've come to accept as facts, and in some cases even scientific facts, you know, Um, and they're unwilling to interrogate those beliefs. Right. You know, in in a real way. Right. To be um, anti-theist or atheist and then still be anti-gay shows that um, there's a residual uh, uh, religious think still going on in your head. Exactly. Well, it's not just, it's not just um, racism, or, and, and, and I said those, those three main ones, but there's also a lot of uh, classism, a lot of, yeah. you know, and permeates this community, too, you know, where there's an uh, elitism and this idea of what an intellectual is and what an you know, what, who does intellectual work. And so I think there are some people who are resistant to the idea that anyone who doesn't have a Ph.D. or isn't a white man who studies, you know, science or biology can have something 
intellectual to contribute exactly. to this movement. And that's not yeah. to say, obviously, that's not to say that everyone is to implicate everyone, you know, on that right. side. But, you know, there's quite a lot of men with that, you know, that characterize it. You, you know, know uh, it's another it's another misused word that I hate, and that's the word minority. Mm-hmm. And they and, and you know because it's really when you think about it, you know who the minority really is right now, is white people, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, I want to say the other part of getting with the church that that makes it difficult is the money. The money that you know, it, it, the money is is what really what it's all about. The money that they're getting, you know, you're competing with that. That's a, that's right. A they don't want your hand in their pockets. Okay, that's so that ain't gonna work. You know, <laughs> that's a business. Yeah, right. they don't want your hand in their pocket. By the way, uh, I think that was Raina. Uh, 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 Ingersoll said, "The man who hates the black man because he is black has the same spirit as he who hates the poor." Because they're poor It's the spirit of caste The proud useless Despises the honest useful Right? And that's I, mean, really, I, I, I've been to a, a, an atheist event yet Whether it be a small gathering uh, well, Where it's predominantly white And not get the question About Well Since your ancestors were um, enslaved by white people. I can't understand for the life of me why they uh, still believe. Well, the next uh, time they ask that question, next time they ask that question, you tell them that before the Civil War, before the Civil War in Pennsylvania, you could be black and free if you agreed and said you were a Christian. If not, you had to be a slave. We just forgot why we were doing that a, stuff in the first place. It's well, the same way, way too. It's the, the same way of, right now. Yeah. Flip side of that. Why don't you ask this question too? How is it that white people supported slavery who were Christian? Yeah. Why didn't they reject it? Um, there is a a, a misnomer. There is a misnomer that Christianity is a white man's religion. Um, but if you look back, I mean, we're talking about Christianity as a, as in the framework, if it's in its infancy, was an Afro-Mediterranean, uh, Sumerian, Babylonian construct. This was not a European deal. So by the time a European got a hold to it and used it in the 15th century, it was we're talking slavery of another kind and another name. So, you know, I'm always having to do this education because there have been plenty of blacks I know, atheists uh, as well, who post stuff online saying this same thing, repeating this. And it is a misnomer. I mean, it is it is to say as if white Europeans gave African Christianity when it is, in fact, an African construct, uh, very much so. Well, and whoever whoever invented the construct, the question should be who should want it. I'll give you a raw man on that. So my uh-huh. point is, instead of pointing the blame and the finger singularly yeah. at African you know, we must look at you know the whole thing and say everyone, if you're going to find any kind of blame or question, 
then everyone should be questioned in that sense because you think, why would white Europeans uh, support this God? Because that means they supported, inherently supported slavery? That was that point. Right. And it's in the oh, Bible. Well, it's okay. It's okay in the Bible. Slavery is okay yeah. in the Bible. That's the thing. Yeah. And not only that, you, it, it, you, if you notice, they don't mention, like, you're supposed to be married to one woman and one man, but it don't say it don't have no, no, no women on the side. You, yeah. Little things like that, they think it's okay to do. Polygamy is okay in the Bible. Huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, and, they, uh, and you don't yeah. you don't even see where it says don't mess with little fifteen year old girls. Oh, you know you understand what I'm saying? Because like Mary was supposed to be something like what fourteen or fifteen when she got pregnant. They don't even right. talk about. You know I noticed who stopped this stuff. It wasn't if 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 Christianity was head of everything and it was like no government. I, I would be a concubine, you know what I'm saying? No, no, they they would kill you and me and the rest of yeah. us on this line. Yeah. <laughs> Raina would have been dead a long time ago. They would have killed us. You're just going to try to read the book to get it smart. <laughs> what are you trying to do? Learn about the brain. <laughs> Definitely strategic in in terms of approach to dealing with both sides. 
the uh, atheist community as well as the uh, believing community. Religion. Exactly. Religion exactly. uses sub- sublimal control. That's what it's all about, control. Right. Very much See, so. That's why I think that's why I think they feel that at first they weren't paying any attention to us, you know, the free no. thought community, the humanist community. But they're starting to pay attention now because mm-hmm. we are making some serious inroads and once we organize a little bit better and start working collectively a lot better and start getting out in the community and working and establishing, you know, that connection there, they are going to start coming after us. And that's why I always say, you know, they're legislating that, you know, homophobia, you know, is illegal and that there are repercussions of homophobia. And I say, well, the next group after, and then, you know, it's already been legislated to a point about women, and that's going to come, you know, to fruition soon as well. The next group after that will be free thinkers, atheists, humanists, and that will be the group that they target. Unfortunately. Yeah, but they're going to get their feelings targeting us because they can't talk to us in public. Without getting their feelings hurt, like uh, someone yesterday, just kind of, I was walking through this uh, street fair, and an Asian chick uh, came up on me, started talking about religion like fast, like was uh, was like in in like her second sentence before I could even recognize what she was doing, right? Because I was just walking through the thing, and it it made me want to have better things to say to her. You know what I mean? And I. And basically, all I tried to say to her was, you know, look, uh, I don't believe that. I don't believe in any book that has rules for rape and slavery. Any Mm -hmm. book with rules for rape and slavery, I close that book. I throw that book away. (laughs) I don't need it around. Oh, by the way, to your other point earlier, uh, by the way, uh, in the 20 years before the Civil War, the Methodists broke apart, and the Northern Methodists, and the Southern Methodists preached against each other for 20 years, the Northern Methodists uh, saying that if you had uh, slaves, you were going to hell. Yeah. We did it for 20 years. The Methodist Church was divided on the issue of slavery just like any other institution at that time. Um, Even up until 1968, had a separate conference for church members. Did y'all, 
Oh yeah, and, and it's important for it's important to note that. And for those of you that missed the, uh, the beginning, well, I don't know what that is, but I'm gonna have to. Um, for those who missed the beginning of the show when I was speaking with Dr. Cameron, and we spoke about a lot of different groups, but I brought up um, the Black Panthers and the Young Lords and what was happening during the Black Liberation, Black Power Movement. And I brought up how uh, the school breakfast programs, um, the local medical access clinics that you see in, in neighborhoods now, and, you know, many other wonderful things. It was created by the Black Panthers group, and it was incorporated and, you know, institutionalized by the government. So there were a lot of positive things that came out of these movements, even though, you know, the people aren't given the proper credit for, you know, bringing up these particular programs. And, you know, the same issue is going to even happen in the free thought community. I'm just telling people, be prepared, wait for the fallout, because it's going to happen. It's coming, and we know it's coming. But we have to get out. We have to start implementing these programs, and while there will be some people that will take a fall, that's just how it goes, we have to push these programs in order to affect positive and productive change in our communities. And unfortunately, there are only a small minority of us that are willing to speak up and get out here and do the work, do the hard work to help the greater good. And you weren't even going to get resistance from some of our own. We're already getting some resistance. So, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, try to support us as much as you can. You know, even if you can't support us, because there are a lot of people that are still closeted. We understand that. But even if you can't come out and help us, you know, in ways, in the means of, of being a physical body to help us with things, you can donate. You know, a lot of these organizations, they're taking donations. You know, I've spoken about it in the past, and maybe we should do a day in which we'll do fundraising, you know, for different groups, people that want to call in and tell us a little bit about their group and what they're fundraising for, and, you know, maybe that can help. But, you know, you can help. You can contribute in some kind of way. And, you know, we need the support. We need the support because, you know, we get frustrated. We really do. We get frustrated, and we need the assistance, but most importantly, it's for the community. And we're trying to branch out. We're trying to establish ourselves. Go ahead. And you'd be surprised who will support. Even there are some believers, uh, agnostics even, or you know, who would. This is why I say I do think it is important to maintain a dialogue with believers. There are believers on my page. I mean, I engage with believers each and every day. You know, I mean, it, it comes down to questions about everything, dating, you know, the whole nine yards. So I think, you know, when we think about, you know, I, I know that what I have done in the last year uh, in terms of posting on Facebook and just using social media to be an, an atheist advocate um, has helped some people to come to grips with the fact that, uh, help believers even, that, Atheist prejudice, atheist bigotry is wrong. They gotta hear that. You know what I'm saying? Yes, it's gonna hurt us. Yes, it's you know bad news. You know we'll get into some arguments, maybe a few verbal fights or whatever. But it's worth it. Uh, it is worth it when I get you know like I told that story of my line sister calling me up this morning at 9 a.m. You know I don't take that lightly. You know what I mean? First of all, I'm glad that she can call me. She does call me because she's not a traditional believer, 
And so our conversation helps to lead her to a uh, helps to give her an understanding of what atheism is all about. Most people think, you know, she and I talked about this morning. I think a lot of people they hear the word atheist and they think you worship the devil and don't even realize an atheist doesn't even believe in the daggone devil. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So it's, it's what, what's, your, your, what's your Facebook page? I'm just saying one more thing. I'm just saying that has to be done in a context of intimacy. You feel me? Because that's mm-hmm. where you make the difference. You know, with total strangers, we, have to, we all have to build up the relationships we need, you know, we want with people in order to run these programs. You can't go yeah. into the community and say, I got it, let's sit down and do something. You might need to go have dinner a few times, not talk about religion or dis- or disbelief at all. Get to know the people, right? Because the yeah, way right. is simply to come in with the message of change, but it is to build relationships. And that's the only way it's going to happen, even within the atheist community, too. So within the atheist community, the same thing. You have to build relationships. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What's your Facebook? Um, the lady that said that, that she had a blog. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do a friend. I'll do a friend suggestion, Deborah. Okay. I'll do a friend suggestion. Yeah, because I don't have okay. no names or nothing. It's okay, huh? I'll do a friend suggestion. But um, basically, you know, we have to move forward. We have we have to move forward. We have to start working with one another. Um, but in addition, I guess the main thing that I want to, you know, bring across is basically we have to get over this cult of personality. And I just want to make sure that the free thought community, that we don't fall into the same ditch that I see in a lot of religious communities, that people join the movement, people join organizations because of a personality. It's bigger than a personality. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than any of us individually. It's about the community. Are you really willing to put forth the energy, the time, and in some cases the finances in order to further what we're trying to do? I throw ideas out here all the time. And, you know, I've had people ask me, why do you do that? And I'm like, I'm not trying to hoard information. I'm not trying to hoard knowledge. I'm not trying to do any of that. I'd rather put it out there because it's going to help some communities. It's going to help other people. Isn't that what we're here for? Yeah. And I question people here. Go ahead, dear. I mean, the reality is, even as we're talking about these power struggles in the church, we have power struggles in the atheist community. So, I mean, it's all two sides. And the truth be told, you have people who are going to use the whole concept of atheism, disbelief, free thinking as a way to make money for themselves to get fame, celebrity, status, you know, woo, woo, woo. And if that's the aim, if that person has an objective like that, I mean, it shows, right? Um, but for those of us who don't have that in mind, meaning, if, if you, you know, it's one thing to be dedicated to a cause. It's another thing to be, you know, dedicated to yourself and you're using the cause for yourself, you know, yeah. for yourself. Like, that's like, real. Like, like preachers. Just like right. a preacher, you know. And, and I would say for those, again, who have come out of the church and or had some angst with religion or religiosity, Unless right. they have, a, go back to that same thing I said about whiteness and 
sexism and heterosexism, we have to intentionally say, decolonize our minds and our bodies so that we go in a new direction because so much about our culture reinforces patriarchy, reinforces sexism, re- you know, on and on and on. Yeah. Um, and reinforces the quest and love of, of money, power, consumerism, materialism, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just because one is an atheist doesn't mean that she or he is free from, you know, those what I would consider to be character flaws, you know? Right. Oh, I agree with you, and that's something that we've talked about, you know, on this show and as well as you and I in, you know, um, conversations. And this consumerism, and again, you know, it's something that Ken brought up, you know, when he's called the show in the past, and talking about changing the mindset of people. And I believe that one of the issues and one of the hurdles that we're going to have to overcome is this consumerism, this materialism. We're Mm -hmm. going to have overcome that and and start reinvesting the amount of money that we spend as far as tithes, offerings, um, in addition to that, being consumer, you know, well over, well over a trillion dollars a year. A year. Imagine what we can do if we reinvested that money back in our community. Now, the first three to five years probably would be a struggle. Because, you know, again, return on investment for those of you that understand the economics of it. But, you know, eventually there will be a lucrative return on investment, not only with the original investors, but also with building up the communities. You know, it will produce jobs. We will be able to produce scholarships. We will be able to produce, you know, productive you know, a lot of the issues we're having in our communities as far as the violence and the counterproductive behavior is because of economics. It's about money. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. Right. if you can build, build big churches, you could. we could have had plenty of big businesses. All that money. Yeah, and, you know, one sense. of the things. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you got, um, go ahead, Annalise. Go ahead, Doug. That's what I'm just saying. There's, that, that's still happening. That's kind of human. These are human problems, you know, meaning human behavior problems where we are influenced by the world around us. We live in a capitalist society that tells people more is better. We live in a society that's become uh, more and more greedy. People have become greedy. They lie. They cheat. They get whatever they want. And these are, again, these are human behavioral issues that one does not just lose because you let go of belief or what happens. Uh Hello? It's like, you still got to work on yourself. Yes, Travis, we can hear you. Okay, good. Did you read the quote um, that you just said? What you just said, Ingersoll said in the 1800s in his speech titled, Some Mistakes of Moses, when he said, who can overestimate the progress of the world if all the money wasted in superstition could be used to enlighten, elevate, and civilize mankind? Mm -hmm. Robert Green Ingersoll. Come on. (laughs) Come on, that's right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, and I mean, these are practical. These are practical applications. They are attainable applications. These are things that we definitely can do. But in the meantime, you know, there are things that we can do. And like I said, I keep hammering on this Emerson Good Samaritan um, Donation Act. Look it up. 
these are things that we can implement. There are other things that we're working on, and I'll start sharing that a little bit in the future. But, you know, I've given a lot of different examples, even with the Affordable Care Act. You know, they're going to need transportation services. They're going to need call centers. They're going to need, you know, many things. Um, One of the things that I've seen with a lot of churches, and I've warned against this before it even started, I said with the Affordable Care Act, the insurance companies are going to start making more money. So we already knew that that's a given. But I said Mm -hmm. that the church start to capitalize on that just as they started capitalizing on mental health care services. They're going to capitalize on the insurance services. And there have been many churches, one in particular up there in Baltimore, you know, with, you know, a rather interesting pastor, and it's a mega church. And what he did is he opened up I his think I know who they're talking about. Yeah, he opened up his own insurance brokerage firm. So, you know, he has a serious license, and he's making money that way as well. And I'm like, if they're doing this, this is something that we can do as well. But it will be giving back to the community because I firmly believe, like one of the things that I want to do is uh, open up a little space and start giving away the food from the Greater Chicago Food Depository, which you all can make donations in the name of my group, Black Nonbelievers of Chicago. You can make donations in our name, but I want to open up a spot where we give out the food and then also work with the LIHEAP program. But I would I would employ the people in the neighborhood to do the job because if you employ people in a neighborhood, they're going to keep an eye over it, and it's, it's going to encourage others and motivate others. And it's, it's a training program. I mean, there are a lot of different ways in which these ideas can be implemented, but we'll still be helping the community. And, and that's what I'm trying to convey and get across. You know, it all goes back to it is to our benefit to make sure that the people in our community are fed, that they're educated, that they have employment. You know, even if it's part-time, part-time is better than nothing. Okay. And, and and so I don't know. Like I said, you know, I really do believe that we need to convene as a group, the leaders, you know, in this community. And we really need to sit down and talk about these issues and hammer out what needs to be done, how we can go about it, how we can implement it, who has what expertise in what area, and utilize that expertise. And, you know, everybody contributes. Everybody has, you know, a say. So everybody has, and, you know, while you may not individually get everything that you want, but seeing some of your of your ideas implemented and it's helping the community, at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. It's not about individuals. It's not about your ego. It's not about, you know, a cult of personality, and we have to get over that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, any any organization that is working for change, again, is going to encounter that. I talked to my I have a good friend, former employer. He's a state rep in uh, Massachusetts. And earlier, he's almost 80. But earlier in his life, he was a uh, civil rights kind of icon uh, in Massachusetts, uh, from Mississippi. And, you know, he, he reassures me when I talk to him, I tell him about stuff I'm doing. He's like, and we went through the same thing. You know, he, 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 this is a part of, of uh, organizing, uh, dealing with personality, dealing with power, uh, again, and another 
aspect of then is organizing is in being somewhat strategic and um, skilled at working through those, you know, occurrences, you know, those happening. That that kind of stuff is going to happen. In other words, I don't think we could say, say to ourselves, well, people are going to just stop being greedy. People are going to stop. You know, something works, actually, uh, I think. Right. So I think we have to learn how to be skilled at dealing with the hustlers. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're going to have to but you have to learn how to manage the hustler, and that mm-hmm. is a part of organizing. Is learning how to manage the the people who are coming in, and they want to, you know, use it for their own personal anger advertisement. I think it's a very very effective organizing. Mm-hmm. And I think that I mean I can take that from being a preacher. You feel me? I mean, there are a lot of good things I learned when I was a preacher. Because yeah, I, had, as a yeah. teacher and as a pastor of a church, I had to learn how to manage the hustlers. Yeah, right. Uh, exactly. had, sometimes you got to be a player to know a player. You got to. I can't play the game, okay? But I prefer not to. Um, or you know, in in order to recognize a hustler, you got to be somewhat of a hustler yourself, but in a good yeah. way. You yeah. know, for, for exactly. No, for exactly. I think about Octavia uh, Butler, the book Wild Seed. If you learn anything from looking at Wild Seed, you, again, you got Doro and you have Anawayu, right? And the two have the same power, but one is using malevolent power, right, Doro, and Anawayu uses her power. She has the same power. She can shape shift. She can do everything that he can do, but she uses hers for good and for self whereas he uses it to destroy and kill and maim. So that's one thing I learned from seeing Octavia Butler, and you know she's one of my favorites, is the power is what it's all in how you use your power. Some people are gonna use their power in malevolent, greedy, nasty, freaking ways, and there's nothing you can do about that. But you can't exactly. manage yeah, you can't manage how that power is affecting you. I always, like, I always like to say that you can't go into a pool hall with a chessboard. There you go. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Exactly, yeah. exactly. For those of you who, um, Dr. Fonza is great. If you all want to check out her blog, it's annaliefonza.wordpress.com. A N N A L I S E F O N Z A dot WordPress dot com and we're always posting her um blogs all over my wall so that information is out there. And for Dr. Cameron, you all can find him at ProfessorCameron.com. dot com. And you spell his last name C A M E R O N. So ProfessorCameron.com, and I've posted that all over my wall, and I've put it out in Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, as well as in the chat room there. And, you know, again, we thank everybody on a panel today that called in. Dr. Cameron, first and foremost, thank you so much. We appreciate everything that he contributed and that he talked about on the show. We're looking forward 
to his books. And, again, guys, you can go out and find the book that he has out now, his autobiography on Amazon. It's the Kindle version, the e-book. So go out and check that out. He goes into more details. And, again, you know, like I said, what intrigued me the most when I read up on him was looking at his background and seeing, you know, where he came from, his journey, you know, from being a troubled youth, you know, as he said, he was in jail on several drug charges. And they gave him the option of going to jail or either going to school, and he chose school. And what it did was it piqued his interest in, you know, intellectualism and, you know, look at him now. So, you know, guys, check that out as well. And, you know, again, thank Raina, Travis, Deborah, um, Mario for calling in, and, you know, we thank all of you guys. But go back. For those that missed the first part of the show, it is very intriguing, very enlightening, and you will definitely like what Dr. Cameron had to say. You know, wonderful man, and, again, you know, invitation is open for him to return at any time. We spoke about the civil rights movement, you know, the inception of it, taking it all the way back the Harlem Renaissance, we spoke about black power movement, we spoke about feminism as well as intersectionality, social justice. We just covered a variety of different topics that first hour. And, you know, I'm just imploring you guys to go out and listen to it. It was really, really wonderful. And the second half of that was absolutely phenomenal as well. But this was a wonderful show. A lot of information was passed back and forth. I'm believing that you guys are learning from this. I've posted the links, and as I read more, I'll go ahead and post some more links this week. Um, last week wasn't feeling too well, so I didn't put a lot out there. But this week, okay, you all want it. I'm going to give it back to you, so I'm going to start hitting you again with some knowledge. But, again, thank you all for being a part of the show, and we are out. Take care, thank everybody. You. Have a good week again. You too. Have a good one. Yeah.